Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Nav M, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoint. Throughout its history, the United States has used regime change, employing military and covert operations to overthrow or prop up governments as part of an integral tool of US foreign policy for over 100 years. Beginning with the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy in 1893, the Spanish-American War in 1898, Continuing through to the Cold War and into the present day, the U.S. has remained steadfast in its zeal to overthrow governments that stood in the way of its political and economic goals. Quite simply, no other nation in modern history has carried out regime change so often and done so in so many locations away from its own shores. Author Stephen Kinzer, in his 2007 book, Overthrow, America's Century of Regime Change, from Hawaii to Iraq, provides a fascinating account of the approach used by various U.S. politicians, military commanders and agency operatives that honed statecraft to depose foreign regimes. And he identifies three key areas over the past century involving America's policy of regime change. First, the imperial era which brought Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Nicaragua and Honduras under America's sway. Second, the Cold War era, which employed covert action against Iran, Guatemala, South Vietnam and Chile. And third, the invasion era, which saw US troops toppling governments in Grenada, Panama, Afghanistan and Iraq. And although Iraq is the most recent example of direct military force used by the United States to exert its power to alter another country's leadership. Kinzer notes that it is certainly not the first. He argues that Iraq was the culmination of a 110-year period during which Americans overthrew 14 governments that displeased them for various ideological, political and economic reasons, all in the name of preserving US strategic and business interests. Kinzer's view is also consistent with analysis provided by a Washington Post article dated December 23rd, 2016, entitled The U.S. Tried to Change Other Countries' Governments 72 Times During the Cold War by author and researcher Lindsay O'Rourke. And this article uses documents from the National Security Archives to reveal a fascinating account of U.S.-backed covert regime changes during the Cold War. In particular, between 1947 and 1989, the United States tried to change the governments of other nations 72 times, including 66 covert operations and six overt operations. And by examining the covert activities of a major power such as the United States, it offers insight into the interventions undertaken by its elected governments and eventual consequences. For instance, why does a strong nation strike against a weaker one? Most often because it seeks to impose its ideology, increase its power or gain control over valuable resources. Various combinations of these three factors motivated the United States to overthrow foreign governments in order to 
extend U.S. global hegemony over the past century or more. The invasion of Iraq in 2003 was arguably the most blatant form of American military intervention. And as I will explain shortly from a historical perspective, it certainly was not an isolated episode. Indeed, the self-aggrandizement and glory-seeking of regime change in Iraq was a short-lived event because this operation caused profound geopolitical repercussions and lasting consequences for the Iraqi people. As is the case with most other coups, revolutions and invasions that the United States launched to depose governments that it feared or mistrusted. Indeed, the United States has used a variety of means to persuade other countries to act on its authority. In many cases, it relies on the artful tactics of diplomacy, offering rewards to governments that support American interests and threatening retaliation against those that refuse. Sometimes it defends friendly regimes against popular anger or uprisings, whereas on other occasions it has secretly supported coups or revolutions organized by other interested factions. And so it's the covert or secret element of American public policy where the United States played an active role in destabilizing foreign governments and ultimately deposing foreign leaders which will form the main focus of this two-part episode. And so in today's episode, I'll begin with a brief primer on covert activity before examining the reasons why covert action has been used as a policy tool by the US government. I'll then address the next issue, whether covert action serves its purpose as a useful mechanism to achieve US foreign policy goals. And in doing so, it's also useful to point out that Creating a definitive list of countries whose governments the United States has overthrown is not a straightforward task because there are many cases where the American government has used non-state actors to achieve their objectives. For instance, the Bay of Pigs invasion, Cuba 1961, or decapitating an established leadership such as Libya 2011. But let's begin with a brief history of 11 confirmed cases of the US government's direct involvement in regime change. So case number one is Hawaii, 1893. In January 1893, a small group of businessmen with the support of the US envoy to Hawaii led a coup d'etat that ousted the Hawaiian monarch, Queen Lili Yukualani from power. And this came six years after the Queen's predecessor and brother, King David Karlakoa, was forced to sign a new constitution at gunpoint, transferring his powers to members of the plantation-owning class. The U.S. subsequently annexed Hawaii in 1898, and the islands remained a U.S. territory until 1959, whereby it became America's 50th state. And in 1993, a century after the coup, the U.S. government formally apologized to native Hawaiians for overthrowing their monarchy and also annexing 1.8 million acres of land without the consent of native Hawaiians or their sovereign government. Case number two is Cuba, 1933. In 1898, the same year the U.S. annexed Hawaii, its victory in the Spanish-American War also gave the U.S. control over Guam, Puerto Rico and the Philippines, which all became U.S. territories. This was also the perfect excuse to begin a military occupation of Cuba. After recognizing Cuba as an independent nation in 1902, the United States withdrew its military from the country with the caveat that it would still exercise force to protect American interests in the future. 
Over the next three decades, the U.S. frequently invaded Cuba and other Caribbean countries in the so-called banana wars to help quash labor strikes and revolutions which threatened U.S.-owned sugar, fruit and coffee businesses. In 1933, it backed military leader Fulgencio Batista's coup to overthrow the Cuban government. After Fidel Castro violently ousted Batista and established the Western Hemisphere's first communist regime, President John F. Kennedy attempted to overthrow Castro's government in the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion. This failed coup not only defined America's ongoing imperialist attitude towards its southern neighbours, it also showcased a new, more interventionist arm, the CIA. And case number three is Iran, 1953. After the United States established the CIA in 1947, it began to use the agency to overthrow or prop up foreign governments in a much more covert way. According to author Stephen Kinzer, prior to World War II, the United States did not bother hiding its interventions to remove foreign governments. However, due to the onset of the Cold War, the United States became more concerned about concealing its activities from the Soviet Union. Under President Eisenhower and then Director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, it was essential to assure that America could employ the concept of plausible deniability, which refers to the ability of governments to deny any involvement in illegal or unethical activities due to lack of evidence. Kinzer states, quote, Eisenhower was probably the last president who believed that you could do these things and nobody would ever find out. And so in 1953, the CIA orchestrated a coup of Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, in order to consolidate power with the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza. And declassified CIA documents claim the coup, known internally as Operation Ajax was designed to prevent possible Soviet aggression in Iran, but in reality, U.S. intervention had much more to do with securing Anglo-U.S. oil interests in the region. And case number four is Guatemala, 1954. In 1954, the CIA orchestrated a coup against another democratically elected leader, Guatemalan President Hasabo Arbenz. The CIA coup codenamed Operation PB Success replaced the president with military dictator Carlos Castillo Armas with the desired aim of stopping the spread of communism. However, the CIA's main motivation for ousting Arbenz was the fear that his land reforms would threaten the interests of the American-owned United Fruit Company, which owned 42% of the nation's land and paid no taxes there. High-ranking officials in the Eisenhower administration had close ties to the company. Secretary of State, for instance, John Foster Dulles had worked for United Fruits US law firm and his brother, CIA director Alan Dulles, sat on its board. And so let's move on to case number five, which is the Congo uh, between the years 1960 and 1965. In 1960, the Republic of Congo, later named the Democratic Republic of Congo, declared its independence from Belgium and democratically elected its first prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. Shortly after Lumumba assumed power, he was forced out of office, aided by a Belgian military invasion. 
And worried about a possible Soviet incursion, the CIA labeled Lumumba a communist leader similar to Castro. Subsequently, the CIA helped facilitate Lumumba's capture and assassination in 1961. This action precipitated a crisis in the country between 1960 and 1965. During this period, military leader Mobutu Sese Siko consolidated power in the country and in 1965 the CIA supported Mobutu coup to take over the country under the guise of preventing the spread of communism. Mobutu eventually ruled the country as a dictator until 1997. Case number six is South Vietnam, 1963. The United States was already deeply involved in South Vietnam, but its relationship with the country's leader, Nodin Diem, was growing increasingly strained amid Diem's crackdown on Buddhist dissidents. The US initially supported Diem because he was fighting against the northern communist government led by President Ho Chi Minh. However, the persecution of Buddhists led Diem to become an unpopular president in South Vietnam and he was subsequently overthrown by a military coup in November just a few weeks before President John F. Kennedy's own assassination. And according to Pentagon Papers published by the New York Times in 1971, the true extent of US government involvement was exposed such that high-ranking members of the South Vietnamese military began plotting a coup on August 23, 1963, with the aid of officials from the Kennedy administration. The South Vietnamese military seized and killed Diem on the 1st of November, 1963, with U.S. support in the form of CIA funds. Case number seven is Brazil, 1964. Driven by fear that the government of Brazilian President João Goulart would, in the words of then U.S. Ambassador Lincoln Gordon, make Brazil the China of the 1960s. The United States backed a coup in 1964, led by then Chief of Staff of the Brazilian Army, Humberto Castelo Branco. In the days leading up to the coup, the CIA encouraged street rallies against the government and provided fuel and arms of non-U.S. origin to those backing the military. And President Lyndon Johnson commented by telling his advisers who had helped plan the coup, quote, I think we ought to take every step that we can, be prepared to do everything that we need to do, according to declassified government records obtained by the National Security Archive. The Brazilian military went on to govern the country until 1985. Case number eight is Chile, 1973. When Chile elected socialist leader Salvador Allende as president in 1970, U.S. President Richard Nixon was keen to prevent him taking office or possibly mount a coup soon after Allende became president. On Nixon's orders, the CIA began supporting different Chilean groups plotting to overthrow Allende. Although direct U.S. government involvement is still contested, the CIA's support of earlier coup plots contributed to a period of volatile political instability. And this created an opportunity for military leader Augusto Pinochet to seize power by staging a coup which ousted Allende in 1973 and allowed Pinochet to effectively rule as president and dictator until 1990. Case number nine is Nicaragua, 1981 to 1990. The United States has a long history of state meddling in Nicaragua. Between 1912 and 1933, the U.S. military occupied the country. Between 1981 and 1986, the Reagan administration secretly and illegally sold arms to Iran in order to fund the Contras, a group the CIA had recruited and organized to fight 
the democratically elected socialist Sandinista government led by Daniel Ortega. In 1986, details of the Iran-Contra affair became public, resulting in highly publicized congressional investigations. Ortega's Sandinista government departed in 1990 following the election of opposition candidate Violeta Chamorro as the new president amid reports that the U.S. had provided funding to help her win. And case number 10 is Afghanistan 2001. When the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in 2001, it established an interim government led by Hamid Karzai to replace the warring Taliban government and the oppositional Northern Alliance. Karzai's rule continued in 2002 when he became head of Afghanistan's transitional government and also in 2004 when he became president of the US-backed Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. And he was succeeded in 2014 by Ashraf Ghani. Ghani was president until the Taliban retook power in 2021 when the US formally ended its war in Afghanistan. And finally, case number 11 is Iraq 2003. In 2003, the United States invaded Iraq and removed Saddam Hussein's government from power. Similar to Afghanistan, the U.S. attempted to establish an interim transitional government. The U.S. formally ended its war in Iraq in 2011. And since then, the country's government structure has remained in flux. And so in the next section, I'd like to introduce a brief primer on covert activity. The legacy of covert U.S. involvement in the 10 examples just described, barring Hawaii, provide a brief overview of successfully staged coups, various U.S. military interventions against hostile regimes, and U.S.-supported insurgencies. The examples cited provide an indication of high-level U.S. government activity in the manipulative statecraft employed by the most powerful economy and military force in the world as part of its ongoing efforts to influence geopolitical discourse and maintain its global hegemony. Interestingly, the topic of covert activity is one that has maintained a checkered past since the immediate post-war era of 1945, because it was also a component of foreign policy for numerous other nations in addition to the United States, including the British and French colonial powers. And as a form of policy, it was implemented in a highly secretive manner, and its very existence was often denied by those that employed it. After 1950, as the Cold War progressed, the covert activities of U.S. intelligence agencies had become a recurring theme within the sphere of international media agencies, proving to be a major stain on the reputation of the CIA and the United States government overall. In the 1980s and 1990s, its practice continued, albeit under different circumstances, and COVID action is still being promoted by many U.S. policymakers as a means to achieving specific goals to perceived problems within the foreign policy arena. Recent noteworthy examples include the war on terror, the conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the NATO bombing campaign waged against the Libyan state in 2011, and most recently in the Ukraine crisis from 2014 onwards. And so for the purpose of this episode, the historical use of covert action can offer much in the way of insight to the investigative mind. In addition, the lessons learned from previous covert activities can be applied to today's global security scenario. In part two of this episode, I'll focus on two unique cases of covert action by comparing the approaches taken in Iraq and Chile. Both of these examples provide a wealth of information on the structure, practical uses and geopolitical implications of covert action. 
ordered by President Eisenhower in 1953, the Iranian coup set the precedent for utilizing covert action as a means of achieving U.S. foreign policy goals by secretly overthrowing a foreign government in a CIA-orchestrated coup d'etat. In doing so, Eisenhower overturned the precedent set by his immediate predecessor, President Truman, which was to use the CIA in its intended capacity, which was to gather and evaluate intelligence. Eisenhower also extended his authority as president by setting a new precedent of intervention without consulting Congress or the public. Chile in 1973 represented the last of its kind in terms of overt U.S. government interference in the affairs of a sovereign state, which ended in similar but not identical circumstances to Iran. Chile was later viewed as a failure mainly due to the collapse of the economy during the early 1980s. But in both cases, there was a gradual escalation of covert operations, which culminated in dramatic results, thus shaping the course of world events. Such cases provide ideal opportunities for foreign policy analysis. And to this day, covert action remains a controversial issue in international affairs, one that is never far from the minds of US policymakers because of its ability to shape future world events. And so in the next section, my aim will be to provide an overview of covert action and how it's been used by the US government, outlining the main purpose and reasoning for its prior use, especially its disproportionate use in the developing world. So let's start by asking, what is covert action? Well, covert action is a collective name given to various policy instruments used by many national governments throughout the world, including the United States, to pursue goals in domestic or foreign policy. Several issues arise with the use of covert action. One issue is the legal basis of such activities. Another issue that arises is the usefulness of such an approach. Given its controversial nature, is it an efficient or effective way of pursuing public policy goals? And does it achieve goals in the most desirable manner possible? In US foreign affairs, the CIA has been the main government agency utilizing covert action as an instrument of US foreign policy. Other key U.S. government organizations include the National Security Council, NSC, the Pentagon, the Defense Department, and the State Department. And there are other non-government organizations, including the National Endowment for Democracy, or NED. In addition, various actors within the United States intelligence community deal with intelligence gathering and analysis rather than covert activities. Examples include the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, which serves the Defense Department and various intelligence branches of the U.S. Armed Services. Finally, the National Security Agency, or NSA. This deals with the interception of communications, transmissions, decoding, and related data collection. The scope and international repercussions of the CIA's covert activities have been enormous. Entire governments of third world nations for example, have been overthrown through coups instigated and orchestrated by the CIA. Other types of covert action are of a less spectacular nature and include activities such as bribing foreign politicians and public servants, manipulating elections, secretly supporting foreign political parties, trade unions and student groups, and engaging in questionable activities in relation to political, social and or economic goals. 
So let's take a closer look at a brief historical overview of COVID action. COVID action, as the name suggests, is a collective form of secret operations which came about as a result of a response to the perceived security threat in Europe after the end of World War II. And it's been an inseparable part of US foreign policy ever since, but differs from conventional policy instruments because it attempts to mask its origins and actions by remaining untraceable. Indeed, this is a consistent feature of the clandestine nature of covert action enshrined in the principle of plausible denial, which refers to the non-attribution of covert activities to the US government or its various agencies. Covert action performed by the US government has, in the majority of cases, been undertaken by the CIA. The CIA was established under the National Security Act of 1947 with the sole purpose of providing the National Security Council, NSC, with advice and recommendations regarding intelligence. In addition to gathering and evaluating intelligence and other tasks pertaining to national security, the legality of the CIA in interfering with the internal affairs of other nations and employing the use of covert action is definitely questionable, although this small oversight has, has never stopped it from using covert action on a widespread basis through its history. For instance, the CIA has been involved in various plots to assassinate public figures in the developing world. In addition, the clandestine nature of most intelligence work and the secretive nature of the agencies involved means certain abuses go far beyond what might ordinarily be allowed or expected by the general public. This type of covert activity has for quite some time been a part of the CIA's arsenal of intelligence tools and covert action and is also well known for its emphasis on changing political regimes abroad. So let's now look at some of the different types of covert action. Author Locke Johnson in his 1995 book, America's Secret Power, the CIA in a Democratic Society, divides covert action into four main types, propaganda, political, economic, and paramilitary. Let's examine each of these categories in turn. Type one, propaganda or psychological operations, this involves the control of media elements overseas in which specific information or disinformation is planted by the CIA in order to control specific news events. The CIA can influence, fund or even own entire media operations in foreign countries. Type 2 is political operations, which involve the bribing of individual politicians and bureaucrats overseas. This is also known as quiet assistance, a term coined by former CIA director William Colby. This type of covert activity also includes the funding of specific political parties, actions against other unacceptable political parties, and the rigging or influence of elections in foreign states. Type 3 is economic operations, and this involves clandestine efforts to upset the economies of foreign nations and includes methods such as counterfeiting, motivating labor unions or other groups to disrupt the flow of everyday business, damaging commodities and interfering with a nation's global trade and also tampering with the international price of products and commodities 
including natural resources or agricultural output. And type four is paramilitary operations. This last type of covert action is the most contentious and usually the most expensive. Paramilitary operations involve the use of warfare and or related violent activities by the CIA, but also in a secretive and indirect manner. An excellent example is the so-called secret war in Laos between 1963 and 1973, in which the CIA utilized violence and military organization to combat communist forces, and in doing so also managed to embroil itself into the huge drug trade that existed within the region. Paramilitary operations have been conducted by the CIA in various parts of the world, including Iraq, Afghanistan, Central America, and have also involved the trade of illegal drugs. The paramilitary element also included murder and assassination as a necessary component of the CIA's business. These individuals within the agency have specialized in unique activities known to insiders as the Health Alteration Committee, according to author William Bloom in his 1986 book, The CIA, A Forgotten History, U.S. Global Intervention Since World War II. And the Health Alteration Committee is also involved in the incapacitation of key individuals such as enemy heads of state through the use of chemical poisons. Notable examples include assassination plans for national leaders such as Fidel Castro of Cuba and Patrice Lumumba of Congo. The Special Operations Division, SOD, of the CIA is the main branch that carried out the dirty work on behalf of the agency. And it has a murky background employing acts of violence including paramilitary operations which obey no recognized rules of engagement or warfare and are the most direct and secretive of all operations known more commonly as special ops they are usually recruited from experienced ranks of the elite special forces of the u.s military the use of paramilitary covert Action has ebbed and flowed over the years, but regained popularity at the beginning of the new millennium due to the increased threat of international terrorism. And in the next section, I will provide an insight and an analysis on the reasons why covert action has been used as a policy tool by the US government. Let's start by examining the use of covert action in the developing world. A significant proportion of U.S. covert activity takes place in the developing world, which in many respects follows a reverse logic because advanced countries, especially in the northern hemisphere, have vested interest to maintain their strategic, economic and political dominance. And as mentioned earlier, post-Cold War realities in the 21st century present new challenges to U.S. policymakers, hence creating renewed interest in covert action as a policy instrument. The advanced nations of the world are naturally suspicious of the developing world because they are not part of the so-called wealthier club and will continue to scan the ranks of the poorer club for signs of revolt and rebellion which are counterproductive to US strategic interests. Moreover, as a region, it has frequently been colonized, neglected and exploited by the industrialized countries of the world based on factors such as strategic importance or the extraction of valuable natural resources. The developing world is the most rapidly growing part of the globe in terms of population, urbanization, industrial activity, international trade, environmental pollution, and social and political upheaval. Hence the need for constant global monitoring means that the developing countries 
are the focus of major theatres of operations, especially during the Cold War and post-Cold War scenario, and became hotspots for covert action. And as a result, the approach taken by the US government in relation to the developing world means covert action as a policy instrument will have repercussions that will last deep into the 21st century. So let's briefly examine the ideological and political case for covert action. The primary theoretical argument in support of covert action is that it's a necessary policy choice for the pursuit of US foreign interests. It eliminates core threats, supports governments that maintain friendly relations with the United States. It supports democratic and free trade regimes which benefit the United States and other nations and ultimately improves both national and international security situations in the United States and worldwide. Covert action is also regarded as a cost-effective policy option relative to the more overt choices such as full-scale military theatre which are part of any nation's foreign policy apparatus. And essentially, covert action becomes a third option due to its inherent passive nature, thus allowing the United States to advance its own security and foreign policy goals. However, much of the justification for covert action was originally based on a Cold War domino analysis of world affairs, perceived threat of the Soviet Union to vulnerable nations within the developing world created a common paranoia of alleged communist takeovers either covert or overt, through the world. Also, uncertainty was created by third world nations that chose a non-aligned strategy, which was often viewed with suspicion by both sides during the Cold War. The United States believed that the Soviet Union was using every method at its disposal to influence and control third world nations. Therefore, the US decided that it must do likewise, and covert actions were designed to address this perceived threat. And in the modern context, international threats have shifted away from communism to international terrorism or religious extremism, and now the threat of rogue states such as North Korea, Iran, Syria, and more recently, the Russian Federation. The CIA has often been criticized for engaging in covert activity, but it's the currently serving US administration of the White House and its advisors, which are the origin of the most important covert operational decisions. Let's take the case of the 1973 coup in Chile. This provides an instructive example of the presidential directive for covert action. The perceived threat to US interests created by the election of a socialist president in Chile was taken seriously by Richard Nixon. And the Nixon administration had for some time been preoccupied with the removal of Chilean President Salvador Allende, and at one point in time, US policymakers were noted for their cloak and dagger preference for covert action. However, on the topic of Chile, Nixon's then National Security Advisor and later Secretary of State Henry Kissinger made his intentions and preference for regime change perfectly clear with his now famous comment, quote, I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its own people. And the success of the early covert operations, such as Operation Ajax in Iran, gave the green light for the use of covert action as an effective policy tool. Kermit Roosevelt, the CIA organizer of the Iranian operation, made it clear that large-scale paramilitary operations cannot be performed anywhere at any time because they required strong internal support as well as long-term planning and intelligence gathering. 
Nevertheless, COVID action effectively became a policy tool of choice because of the long-term effects of Operation IAX, meaning that the agency became a victim of its own success as politicians swooned over the clinical ease of applying covert operation. What then is the future of covert action as an instrument of US foreign policy? Is it a useful yet potentially dangerous policy tool that requires careful attention and supervision of its use? Now more than ever, covert action requires evaluation as a legitimate instrument of public policy in international affairs if it is to hold any purpose. And so in the next section, I'll be addressing the issue of whether COVID action serves its purpose as a useful policy mechanism for achieving US foreign policy goals. Much of the analysis of COVID action in achieving policy goals has focused on specific aspects of its use, such as its questionable legality or its highly controversial history. In order to evaluate a policy tool for its usefulness, we also need to ask questions such as, Does the policy tool accomplish what it's designed to do? Does it do so in a reasonable manner? Is it a legitimate means by which governments can operate? So let's begin this complex discussion with the legality of covert action. Because at the outset, it's fair to say that any policy instrument should take its own legitimacy into consideration. Legality is an inherent part of legitimacy. This important criteria often goes unmentioned with public policy instruments, mainly because they lack the controversial element of covert action. This perspective is largely affected by the manner in which the United States pursues its foreign policy objectives. Essentially, its goals are a mirror reflection of the way it perceives foreign policy problems. Despite the fact that covert action has been a policy instrument of the US government for decades, the legal basis of COVID action and its use by various administrations has often been in doubt. But where does this doubt originate from? Well, let's start with the predecessor of the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, which engaged in COVID activities throughout the Second World War. General William J. Donovan, who was in charge of the wartime OSS, argued that in the post-war era, the demand for intelligence operations would be equally significant in order to, quote, solve the problems of peace. Donovan's proposal was to refashion the OSS into a central intelligence service responsible for the coordination, planning, evaluation, and dissemination of intelligence. As such, the central premise behind the use of covert action is not to attribute any activities directly to the US government or any of its agency. As the name suggests, covert action is a collective form of secret operations, untraceable to their origins. But ultimately, this premise is flawed because a significant amount of covert activity eventually finds its way back to the public domain. And equally important is the fact that covert activity should be controlled by some form of legal oversight, hence referencing our original point of legitimacy and being accountable to a democratically elected body. On balance, though, many of these activities are exactly that, but others are not so straightforward. And this is due to the clandestine nature of intelligence work and the secretive nature of the various agencies involved, which means that certain abuses can go far beyond what might ordinarily be allowed or expected by the general public. And following the passing of the National Security Act in July 1947, the CIA effectively became an independent department with its own remit. 
A year later, Congress passed the Central Intelligence Agency Act, which effectively exempted the CIA from all federal laws, meaning no disclosure of agency functions and the power to use federal funds without any oversight. The inevitable result was that after the Second World War, the CIA also began to use covert action during peacetime against non-aggressive nations, i.e. those countries where the U.S. maintained friendly diplomatic relations. And that's because the CIA was assigned with five essential tasks. The first four relate to matters of national security, coordination of intelligence, data gathering and analysis to provide a service of common concern, and fifth, to perform other functions and duties. And hence it was the CIA's fifth function which took the agency into uncharted waters regarding coups and covert action. This mysterious fifth function, with its provision to carry out other functions and duties, was ultimately responsible for the Eisenhower administration setting the tone for future presidents to deviate from their constitutional commitments and has also been cited as the legal foundation for covert action. But the inclusion of covert action under this line of reasoning is highly tenuous because the last provision provided a quasi-legal umbrella for the CIA to conduct secret warfare, yet nowhere in the CIA's mandate from the National Security Act of 1947 is there any mention of the terms covert operation, clandestine operation, paramilitary operations, secret operation, and special operation, because these are all euphemisms for secret warfare. The phrase other such functions was designed to address unforeseen circumstances and certainly did not include any reference to Congress extending its legislative authority to international coercion to justify covert operations. And even if it did, the language of the statute would be much clearer. Moreover, from a legal perspective, covert operations, at least those involving paramilitary action or the overthrow of governments, would appear almost by definition to be unconstitutional. And because the Constitution of the United States invests war power within Congress, Operations on this scale are clearly the equivalent of undeclared war, yet they are undertaken by the executive branch alone. Congress and the public have no opportunity to debate or approve such operations in advance. Furthermore, as Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, the US President has the authority to utilise armed force in a specific manner. But let's not forget the CIA is not an armed force, and any presidential attempt to use the agency for military purposes is not only questionable but officially subject to the War Powers Act of 1973. Despite the ambiguity of covert action and its legal status as a policy tool, the domestic legal dimension is only part of the problem. We also need to consider the issue of international law, which arises on a regular basis, and quite so, given the vast global operation of the CIA and US intelligence activities in general. For instance, does the United States indeed have the legal authority to interfere in the internal affairs of sovereign states? Does such intervention conflict with existing legal frameworks established through international treaties and multilateral institutions such as the United Nations. A history of covert activity would suggest that there is a conflict of interest because by comparison the interference of other states in American domestic affairs would be met with the ire of policymakers in Washington pointing to a policy of double standards. 
And the issue of U.S. interference in the internal affairs of sovereign states is evidently a legal issue, but also a moral issue. There can be no denying that interference of this sort is illegal. Under most countries' laws, a foreign government is strictly prohibited from meddling in that nation's internal processes. But the matter goes much further than the issue of illegality. For instance, espionage is also illegal under international law, but most countries still engage in it, justified by the inherent right of sovereignty over self-defense and self-preservation of the state. That's because although espionage may be illegal, it is not covert action and does not attempt to change the outcome of events in other nations, but only to gather intelligence. That said, have past covert operations been directed against genuine threats to US security or have there been ulterior motives? So at this juncture, we are now venturing into the realm of ethics, which is a subjective area. Therefore, to avoid a major philosophical debate which goes beyond the scope of this episode, it should be noted that covert action is a policy tool which is unlike any other, because the controversy created involves both domestic and international legal issues, as well as basic moral issues and continues to exist at all levels of government and society. Covert operations, indeed, Intelligence operations overall continue to exist in a legal vacuum or some type of twilight zone without a proper constitutional framework or statutory law to guide such operations covert action has evolved with a bureaucratic momentum of its own in addition covert operations have not only been used in exceptional circumstances where the vital interests of the united states have been at stake but also u.s administrations have made excessive and self-defeating blunders in covert action, the long-term international impact of repeated US covert activity can never really be quantified. Suffice to say that the cumulative effect of covert operations has been increasingly costly to America's international reputation. Let's now examine another key aspect of the concept of usefulness, which is the effectiveness of policy tools in achieving the goals of US foreign policy. As far back as the early 20th century, the conventional wisdom of policymakers in Washington has been that a more democratic world helps to keep America strategically safe. It therefore follows by increasing the number of democratic regimes in the world by force, this has proved to be advantageous to the United States. Scenarios where this occurred by force include American occupations in post-World War II, Germany and Japan, also in later military operations such as Grenada, Panama and various Middle East conflicts. Interestingly though, the, the use of military force to remove unfriendly regimes has continued even after spectacular failures. And despite the military failures, US leaders will resort to blaming setbacks on botched execution rather than scrutinizing their own culpability to pursue regime change in the first place. In other instances, when the mission encounters difficulty or does not result in the quick success initially envisaged, some political commentators may question the American resolve to stay the course or point to a flawed counterinsurgency strategy or perhaps weak post-war planning resulting in sub-optimal decisions. And despite this litany of excuses, regime change advocates still insist that regime change can deliver success. But the fundamental problem with this conventional approach is the empirical record. Academic research shows that there is a dearth of cases in which regime change missions have succeeded as intended. According to political scientists, 
Alexander Downs and Lindsay O'Rourke in their 2016 article, You Can't Always Get What You Want, Why Foreign Imposed Regime Change Seldom Improves Interstate Relations, which was published in the journal International Security, Volume 41, Number 2. Overwhelming evidence does not support the view that regime change is a robust tool for removing unfriendly regimes to either enhance American security or promote humanitarian interests. Instead, the historical record shows that armed regime change missions rarely succeed regardless of the strategy utilized and they often produce unintended consequences such as humanitarian crises and weaker internal security within the targeted state. While it may be in the interest of American officials to promote democratic institutions around the world and create friendly regimes, the end results are invariably detrimental. Yet despite this poor track record, many policymakers continue to advocate forcible regime change due to cognitive bias and a rigid focus on short-term results. So given that a full assessment of facts and resources is vital to the success of such missions, this leads us to ask, can regime change work? Assuming regime change is a valuable instrument in the American policy toolkit, then by all accounts, there should be more evidence that such missions can achieve positive goals. For example, one goal that officials attempt to achieve through regime change is better interstate relations. However, researchers Downs and O'Rourke argue there is very seldom a meaningful reduction in future conflicts between the intervening country and the targeted country, let alone improved relations following regime change. Instead, interstate relations are often made worse due to principal-agent dynamics, The newly installed regime is often compelled to appease local concerns over the intervener's interests in an attempt to prove that their government is legitimate and not merely a foreign-directed puppet. In addition, newly installed leaders must primarily serve their own domestic audiences. However, home politics will invariably diverge from foreign politics, which means if the newly installed regime is overly subservient to the intervener's political agenda, domestic supporters may turn against the new regime. In addition, occupying forces may engage in regime change to enhance economic ties with the target state, thus accruing benefits for the foreign interveners, firms and businesses. But instead of improving bilateral trade flows, foreign-imposed regime change often leads to stagnation or worsening trade relations between the intervener and the local territory. In the long term, the instability created by regime change makes firms unlikely to invest in the region, causing a decrease in trade. For instance, after the Iraq invasion in 2003, large American corporations exploited the situation after the economy was essentially privatized and opened up to foreign investment and subcontractors. So let's now turn our attention to democracy promotion. The most common justification for modern regime change is democracy promotion, which It's argued leads to more peaceful bilateral relations and regional stability. The George W. Bush administration used this logic to justify the decision to implement regime change in both Afghanistan and Iraq. This sparked a fierce debate on whether foreign-imposed regime change via gunpoint can actually produce democratic states. Indeed, the most common outcome of a foreign regime change operation is democracy reduction in the region. A prime example is the disconnect between American policymakers and Hamid Karzai after the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. 
after the Bush administration helped to install him as a leader, the tension between Karzai and the United States became so strained over policy disagreements that Karzai stated, quote, to the American people, give them my best wishes and my gratitude. To the US government, give them my anger, my extreme anger. As reported by journalist Kevin Seff in a Washington Post article dated March the 2nd, 2014. And so the difficulty of imposing democracy by force should not be underestimated because the goals of those favoring armed intervention become politically complex to the extent that the likelihood of the mission's success declines. Conversely, where regime change missions do succeed, it's usually where narrow goals have been laid out for the mission. And to put this into perspective, according to research conducted by political scientists Alexander Downs and Jonathan Montaigne, out of 28 cases of American regime change, only three cases proved successful in building a lasting democracy, as reported in their 2013 publication, Forced to be Free, Why Foreign-Imposed Regime Change Rarely Leads to Democratization, in the journal International Security, Volume 37, Number 4. By examining particular cases where successful regime change did occur after World War II, such as Germany and Japan, it was considered effective because an environment of pre-existing democratic institutions favorable to economic and political success were already present. In both these countries, there were high levels of pre-war economic modernization, the presence of robust government bureaucracies and strong democratic state institutions, thus making them more likely to democratize in a short time span. In stark contrast, most regime change examples in the modern scenario are targeted at weak states or perhaps those states that are unsuited for a quick transition to democracy because they lack robust economic development or a solid track record of representative government. And so to conclude this section on the effectiveness of covert operations in the final part, I'd like to briefly focus on the overall effects of regime change. Broadly speaking, regime change operations may still be worthwhile if they offer a low-cost, highly strategized opportunity to bring about political change. But in reality, the effects of regime change often leave the targets worse off and more likely to face future political, economic and military problems that raise the cost for both the intervener and the domestic population. And according to researchers, the most consistent finding on the effects of foreign-imposed regime change is the increased likelihood of civil war. Civil wars often ensue because regime change operations weaken existing state structures and institutions, creating a power vacuum and allowing resistance and rebel movements to grow. The imposition of new leaders by a foreign power also creates grievances against the regime, which in turn erodes legitimacy, prompting civil conflict. Indeed, in military occupations where occupiers change political institutions, the local population is likely to resist the new leadership precisely because it was installed by a foreign power. And this destabilization process persisted in roughly 40% of the cases of covert regime change undertaken during the Cold War, and consequently a civil war broke out within 10 years of the operation. The probability of rebellion and civil war also contributes to a deterioration of the human rights situation among the local population following a military regime change. Interveners often rationalize human rights abuses and civilian deaths 
as a byproduct of the power shift in government by arguing that repression is needed to crush resistant movements. Researcher Lindsay O'Rourke reports that in more than 55% of the cases of covert regime change undertaken during the Cold War, the targeted states experienced a government-sponsored mass-killing episode within 10 years of the regime change mission. And similarly, on the non-government side, opposition groups also participate in human rights abuses and killings. The propensity to revolt after an intervention that replaces local leaders can also produce higher levels of domestic terrorism amongst the newly installed regime. Policymakers often overlook the potential for state-building missions to devolve into further costly wars. And as a result of the dire situation which emerges after regime change, the intervening force becomes bogged down in the region and is often forced to embark upon lengthy state-building projects, even when this was not the initial objective. One good example of this is when the US gave the green light to proceed with covert regime change in South Vietnam to oust leader No Dien Diem in 1963. US officials justified it as necessary to ensure the South Vietnamese regime remained stable in light of the Buddhist crisis that embroiled the country. However, after Diem's assassination and the resulting destruction of the existing bureaucracy, U.S. leaders used more resources in expanding the mission, eventually launching a state-building mission and effectively Americanizing the war in South Vietnam. Furthermore, the consequences just mentioned are only the short-term effects of regime change, whereas the possible long-term effects on foreign policy goals are even more consequential. Evidence suggests that the United States' appetite for regime change affects how other countries such as North Korea, Iran, China and Russia view American foreign policy. The North Korean view on nuclear missiles and their decision-making after the American-led regime change in Libya 2011 is particularly instructive. The North Koreans concluded that only nuclear weapons can prevent regime change and therefore made the choice to further their nuclear weapons program. Referencing the 2011 intervention that ousted Libya's leader, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, North Korea's state news agency reported that, quote, history proves the powerful nuclear deterrence serves as the strongest treasured sword for frustrating outsiders' aggression. And so this is just one example, but with the increased use of regime change, the cost of each mission might aggregate to produce even more far-reaching and potentially harmful international effects. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. But in the next episode, I will continue the discussion on US-led regime change by examining two highly significant case studies, that of Iran and Chile, which explore more deeply the actual use of covert action as a US foreign policy instrument. Both examples present an extremely complex picture regarding the rationale used in regime change, as well as offering valuable lessons to be learned from the use of covert action. And as always, I'll see you next time, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.